If you'd like to hear more from the leading scientists and futurists of our day, give us a follow and tune in each Thursday for a brand new episode of Brave New World. I'm Evgeny Lebedev, and welcome to my podcast, Brave New World. Mental health and addiction are fifth leading causes of illness throughout the world, affecting 20% of the population. The world filled with uncertainty with bleak prospects for the future has led to mental health crisis. However, a new approach to mental health and addiction is starting to gain momentum. And it's been coined the psychedelic renaissance. There is mounting evidence to suggest it could help those suffering from depression, anxiety, drug addiction and alcohol use disorder. While some researchers are skeptical, others describe it as a paradigm shift for psychiatry. David Nutt is a psychiatrist and a professor of neuropsychopharmacology at Imperial College London and one of the godfathers of the field. So the term psychedelic originally meant mind manifesting. These were drugs like LSD and uh, ayahuasca, which allowed people to see what they thought was a true self uh, rather than the uh, rather constrained perspectives on life that, um, that most people have as a result of upbringing and education, etc. He uses a range of brain imaging techniques to explore the causes of addiction and other psychiatric disorders and search for new treatments. Professor Nutt's career has also not been without controversy. He served as a chairman of the Advisory Council on the Misuse of Drugs, where he repeatedly clashed with the government ministers over issues of drug harm and classification. Now when we talk about psychedelics, we're talking about generally about drugs which work on the serotonin receptor system, a particular receptor called the serotonin 2A receptor. And these are drugs like LSD, like ayahuasca, which is the drinkable form of DMT. I like psilocybin, like 5-methoxy-DMT, and also mescaline. And they share a common pharmacology targeting this serotonin receptor. They also produce very similar changes in the brain, which are manifest by very similar but not identical changes in the experience of consciousness. Now, there's a broader definition of psychedelic, which encompasses other drugs such as ketamine and drugs like salvia divinorum and uh, ibogaine. And these produce slightly different changes in the brain, but they do produce altered states of consciousness. And currently, really, only ketamine is being used therapeutically alongside the, what we call the classic serotonin psychedelics. Lara Parker is a journalist for the website BuzzFeed. After exploring multiple treatments to treat her clinical depression, she decided to try ketamine-assisted therapy in California, where she lives. Lara, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself and and basically what, why we're here having this conversation? Yeah, so it's, what, been a couple of years now or a little over a year, I decided to try ketamine-assisted therapy, which is... In America, in California specifically, they have clinics. And basically, you can go to these clinics. If you get approved, you have to sort of meet with a the therapist beforehand. Um, if you live with certain things, like for me, I live with depression. And it got to the point where I had tried the pharmaceutical route. I had 
been in therapy for five to six years, I felt like I was sort of running out of options. And all of this was just like really fascinating to me as someone who lived with depression and is really fascinated by plant medicine because I live with chronic pain and I medicate with medical cannabis. And so I was really curious about it and decided to give it a go and sort of write about my experience because when I Googled it, a lot of what I found was like this high level scientific study type stuff, which is great. And there's a place for that. But for me, I was like, I just want to know what someone feels like, like going through it. And it's a difficult thing to describe really, but I wanted to do my best to sort of give readers information about what it was like for me, just like an average person with depression to go through something that isn't readily available to everyone. What did it entail? What was your experience? So the first thing that you do is meet with a therapist on staff to really go over your medical history in depth, specifically your mental health history, to make sure that you're a viable candidate for ketamine therapy. And then from there, they sort of recommend a number of treatments based on what they think you're dealing with and what might help. So I ended up doing four treatments in total. You know, I would have like a lower dose of around 30 to 50 milligrams and it was an injection in my arm and I would be like completely not in the room. Whereas they would say that other people, it would take more than that um, to actually have the hallucinogenic effect. I found it to be very difficult because I was very disoriented and nauseous and dizzy. So I ended up laying down for the final three treatments, which I personally would recommend to anyone trying this. And uh, they play music for you and the therapist sort of sits next to you. They inject you and within three minutes, you are in the space, whatever that space is for you based on what the medicine brings up. At one point, I felt like I was at Lake Tahoe. And I also had this like really powerful vision for lack of better term about an uncle that had passed recently before that um, to suicide. And it was like this very calming moment where I was very, very sure that he was okay. And that what had happened was okay. It's hard to describe after the fact, but I was just like, very sure. And I'm not a very sure of myself person. And a lot of my depression is sort of questioning life's meanings and why things happen. I mean, the classic, like why do good things or bad things happen to good people? But like in my sessions, I was very self-assured and very aware that everything was going to be okay. Did you choose the music? I didn't choose the music. And it's sort of interesting. They have these like different mixes and you're, in my experience, like my brain sort of went along with it. How do you feel after the sessions, both long term and, and short term? Like when I look back on the article, I sort of wish that I had waited like eight months to write it because I felt like after I had written it, I started to experience a little bit more of the positive mind effects, which I was sort of surprised by because I thought that it would be not as gradual. I thought it would be like more immediate, but I will say that in the year after, I definitely feel like better emotionally, but I don't feel cured, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Is this something you'd consider doing again? I absolutely do think I would do it again. And I was thinking recently about sort of looking into the possibility of trying to do it annually or biannually and what that would look like for me. I think even if I didn't do ketamine specifically again, this has sort of opened my eyes to the possibilities that exist with psychedelics. And I think even if it was difficult physically at times, the fact that it gave me such powerful visions that will stick with me probably for the rest of my life is something that just makes me really hopeful. And I think hope is 
you know, one of the best things that you can have to fight depression. So I think even if I don't do ketamine again, I think the world of psychedelics is definitely something that I want to be a part of. Patient lived experiences are really, really important when we talk about living with depression and anxiety. So I just want to open people's eyes that even if it doesn't work for everyone, having the option is groundbreaking and that should be something that we aim to strive for. When you look at the brain imaging of ketamine versus the LSD or psilocybin, you discover they produce very identical brain signatures. If you look at the cortex, the outer level of the brain, the high level thinking parts of the brain, you record from the cortex under these different drugs and you see that they all produce a state of profound desynchronization. Normally the brain is chugging away with a particular frequencies. There's a very famous frequency called the alpha frequency, which is about 10 hertz. And all those frequencies get profoundly disrupted by psychedelics. They disorganize the brain and they produce what is called an entropic state, a state of, of increased chaos. And they do that through working either on the serotonin system or in the case of ketamine, working on the glutamate system. But there's another interesting twist to this, which is that certainly with ketamine and with classic psychedelics, serotonergic psychedelics, after the drug is gone, there's still a residual effect in the brain, which we call neuroplasticity. The brain seems to be more capable of learning new ways of thinking and laying down new patterns of behavior. So the way we visualize these psychedelics, serotonin ones and ketamine working in disorders like depression and in addiction, is that they disrupt what you might call negative thought loops. People get locked into thinking the wrong thoughts in depression. There are often negative thoughts about guilt and about failings that people have had in the past. In addiction, there are often cravings, desires to use drugs or alcohol. And those thought loops are perpetuated thousands of times a day. So hundreds and hundreds of thousands of times in someone's lifetime. And they can become deeply entrenched to the point where the patient may even know that they're ridiculous, but they can't stop them. They become a habit in the brain. When I'm having depression, it's like none of those things are exciting or seem worth it. So there's this real disconnect because I know logically that should be a feeling that induces some happiness, but it's like my depression will not let me recognize those feelings. And psychedelics, by disrupting the circuits which underpin these thought loops, break the loops. They allow people to escape. During the trip, they escape from the thinking about the depression or the thinking about the addiction. and. That has serves two purposes. The first is it shows people they can change, they can recover. But it also, in that state of uh, more entropic brain activity, you can make connections in the brain which you haven't made probably since you were a child. And those new connections can help you see things differently. They can help people realize the causes of their depression or their addiction or see ways out, see other ways they could deal with, say, for instance, with depression. If you're drinking to deal with stress, maybe you can see that you don't need to. You could actually say no to your friends and go home to your wife rather than going out and getting drunk every night. And those new insights into how you might think differently can be laid down in the place of the old thoughts by this neuroplasticity. So it's this powerful combination of disrupting old thinking and facilitating the laying down of new thinking, which underpins the therapeutic utility of these drugs. Do you find this effect for 
every subject you've trialed on, or there are some people who don't react to it? So, no, not everyone does respond. Certainly not everyone even gets a trip. One of the strangest things we found in the study we did, which was a the first proper imaging study of LSD, we thought, well, we'll make sure everyone gets it because we'll give it intravenously. That way, you know, there's no chance of it not being absorbed. We had 24 subjects and um, amazingly, two of them had no effect at all. And we have no idea why that is. We presume that it's maybe something to do with rapid metabolism or it might be something to do with some people have different receptors. They don't have the same sensitivity of their serotonin receptors as others. So, so there's individual variation in the sensitivity of these drugs. But of course, there's also enormous individual variation in the experience. And this is, I think, a very important message to get across. There's a sense from people who've used these drugs experientially, non-medically, recreationally, who've had fun with these drugs, they, they sometimes say to me, well, of course, your depressed people, your, your alcoholics are getting better because you're giving them couple of hours of a fun trip? And the answer is, we're not. For most of our patients, the trips are challenging. The trips put them back into places where they are confronted with the trauma. They're confronted with the experience which led to their depression, or they're confronted with the consequences of their depression or their addiction. The issues that I talked about or thought about or went into during my experience were transformative in the sense that I got to look at them through a different lens. I mean, one of the most remarkable things we discovered in our studies of psychedelics, psilocybin in particular with depressed people, was that how profoundly beneficial even a single trip can be. People who've had depression for 20 or 30 years, who've been on maybe 10 different medications, could get some almost immediate respite within a day or so their depression had lifted and they were feeling normal again. They were back with their families enjoying lives. It, it was truly one of the most remarkable things I've ever seen in medicine. And for a lucky few of those people, they've stayed well. So 10 years after the treatment, they're still well. But for the majority, the depression creeps back. And we don't know exactly why that is. We think it's probably got something to do with the duration of the illness. And that makes sense because you can think that people who've been depressed for a very long time have had more and more of the repetitive thoughts. They've got deeper and deeper ingrained in the brain. But also there's another aspect, which is that people who are neglected or abused as children often grow up to be depressed. And there we may have something even more sinister. We may have the fact that their brain has become wired. It's learned to be depressed. The question I had, what, why with that in mind, it's, it's such a fringe area of research still. You said the only one that's used for therapeutic purposes now is ketamine. How do you feel about that and, and not the others? It's the only psychedelic that is licensed. And ketamine is licensed, not as a psychedelic, but as an anesthetic. Now, we're not using it as an anesthetic. We're not putting people to sleep with it. We're putting them into a state where they can have altered consciousness, they can have mystical experiences, they can break down their patterns of thinking and remember the new approaches and new insights they get. So it's a, it's a sub-anesthetic dose of ketamine. But we have to use ketamine because all the other drugs, all the other psychedelics are called Schedule One drugs. And being a Schedule One drug means that it's virtually impossible to work with them. You have to have special licenses, special safes, special permissions. And that adds enormously to the cost of research. 
And of course, you can only use Schedule 1 drugs in research. They're not medicines by definition. So one of the big challenges for us is to try to get the regulators to change the attitude to psychedelics so that they can be more readily studied. They could be less expensive to study. You don't need the same protection as we're asked to have now. I'm going to give you an example. It's completely absurd that to work with psilocybin, which is you know a drug you can get just by picking mushrooms in your garden, I have to have a special license. I have to have several licenses, actually, to hold it, to dispense it, to research it. I have to have a special safe put in a special room with a special key access with a camera to make sure no one's stealing it. And I say to these regulators, well, hang on a sec. Why can't I just put it alongside the heroin and the fentanyl that I've got in my um, other safe box? And they say, oh, no, 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 no. They're Schedule 2 drugs. This is Schedule 1. And I say, well, hang on a sec. If anyone's going to break into a, to a hospital safe, they're going to take the heroin. They're not going to take the mushrooms. Oh, no, no. So this, this mystique that Schedule 1 drugs are so dangerous has created a monster of regulatory control, which massively, massively adds to the cost. Uh, and that's one of the reasons I'm working with, with Awaken Life Sciences now, because they do have a license to use ketamine off-license as a psychedelic in therapy. And despite the amazing results I got from the very first study we published in Lancet Psychiatry and Resistant Depression, which was funded by the Medical Research Council in the UK. Every other grant I've put in to do this research has been turned down. So we've had six grants turned down. And without grant money, it's very hard to do this research. So I decided to work with Awaken to try to utilize ketamine, optimize ketamine, develop clinics, develop the skill sets in the therapists to know how to use and uh, progress and heal people with ketamine. And then hopefully at some stage in the not too distant future, psilocybin and maybe MDMA will come along and we can start using those as well. David, how, how, how did it happen? How did this classification happen and, and what needs to change? So how do we get into this situation where all psychedelics are put into the most rigorously banned class of drugs? So psychedelics are put into we call, what we call Schedule 1 of the UN conventions alongside crystal meth crack cocaine, various highly potent opioids. Why are these drugs put into Schedule 1? And the answer is historic. The answer is that when it was decided that psychedelics needed to be banned, which was in America, that's where it kicked off in the late 1960s, because psychedelics were seen as fueling the anti-Vietnam War movement. These drugs were banned and put into Schedule 1, in a, I believe, in a deliberate attempt to stop people ever finding out the truth about them. In order to ban them at all, public hysteria had to be created to suggest that they were very dangerous drugs. The hippies, the flower people, see LSD as an aid to self-knowledge, a key to the closed doors of the mind, perhaps a sacrament to the God they seek. The hippies use LSD as a vehicle unto themselves. The results? are disturbing to society, but if nothing else, the hippies seem to have found some sort of peace, some refuge from a world which they reject. And a lot of unscrupulous newspaper editors of the sort of the, the very lowest level of newspapers, the scandal rags, they put up terrifying front pages saying how dangerous LSD was. There was a lot of hysteria generated, mostly fabricated stories, but public concern was a justification for banning a drug. 
So the problem came not just that they banned a drug. There were plenty of other illegal drugs at the time. I mean, in America, most opiates were illegal, but they were in Schedule Two, so they could still be used as medicine. The decision was made that psychedelics should be put into Schedule One, which said they could not be used as medicines. There are no documents that you can find which explain that decision. My own view is it was a deliberate punitive ploy to put psychedelics into a schedule such that they could never be used or wouldn't be used again. That way, no one could expose the lies that were told to get them banned. It was almost successful because the impact of the Schedule One ban virtually destroyed research on psychedelics, virtually destroyed it. And it's only a few pioneers, such as uh, Rick Strassman in the States and Vollenweider in Switzerland, who carried on doing small amounts of research with these drugs just to keep the field alive. And then, of course, in the last 10 years, there's been an explosion of research, despite the fact it's very hard to work with them, because people have seen not only that they are remarkably powerful medical tools, but also the science has been massively expanded. We understand that these drugs, now we understand the sophistication of their interactions in the brain. We understand how they change the brain. And so now we have a, a very powerful dual approach, the scientific approach, the brain science, illuminating how they work and the clinical science utilizing that uh, new knowledge of brain science. And the patient voice is becoming very loud here because you can imagine when someone's been depressed for 20 years and then they have their life restored with psilocybin, they're often very vociferous. Why did I have to wait this long? I think currently in the United Kingdom, we're in a, in a in tricky position. We've, you know, we've led the world in terms of the research on the brain effects of psychedelics. We've led the research or leading the research on many of the clinical applications. Well, we've got very little funding. Almost all my funding comes from philanthropists rather than from either pharmaceutical companies or from the government. Whereas you see in the States, you know, there's massive initiative. Biden has said just recently that MDMA and psilocybin should be medicines within a couple of years. And there's a huge investment in the U.S., I think in the US, these will be medicines quite shortly, not to the cost benefits. Look at all the, the millions of people who've been emotionally damaged by COVID or by having PTSD from working with people who are dying without proper health care. The burden of mental illness is growing continuously and it would be perverse for health authorities not to want to do something different. I greatly enjoyed my conversation with Professor Nutt. I also had the pleasure of speaking to one of his maverick disciples, Professor Robin Carhart-Harris. Can you tell me about your study that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine, the one titled Trial of Psilocybin versus Escitalopram for Depression, and the fallout since the results were published? It's had quite an impact but it wasn't it wasn't that long ago really um so we're still seeing the kind of initial waves from that um publication and that was significant because for the first time we made a comparison or anyone made a comparison between psychedelic medicine psychedelic therapy and mainstream first line treatments in psychiatry 
in this case, a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor, which is a conventional antidepressant drug. And we did a head-to-head, two arms, two groups. It was the, the psilocybin therapy versus this SSRI for depression. And the short story is that psilocybin looked superior on virtually every outcome measure. The write-up was a little bit more moderate than that because there was one outcome measure that psilocybin therapy didn't show statistical superiority on. And that happened to be what we call the primary outcome measure, which is the one that you pre-register pre-trial to sort of pin your main comparison on. And that kind of dominated the narrative. So in a sense, the write-up is quite conservative to the actual results, I would say. And that's okay because there's a lot of hype in this space. What is the next stage now of looking into the potential benefit of magic mushrooms within this therapeutic space? So there's a few. What One is to do bigger trials that have what you call greater clinical equipoise, which means you know people could say, oh, well, that, that Carhartt Harris and, and David Nutt, they're a bit biased. They, they've been in this you know, early on and, and they want to see a certain outcome. They're interested in seeing, you know, the, this, these psychedelics come out on top. So these multi-site trials come along where people are newer to psychedelics and there are a number of teams running studies that then get grouped together into a group result and they publish on that. So Compass Pathways have recently announced findings from a multi-site trial. We've got USONA publishing probably or at least reporting on results of a multi-site trial in depression next year. In a sense, they're on a path towards potential licensing of psilocybin therapy as a medicine, which then creates the legalization of, of the treatment. The other thing is that these studies that we've done have been highly constrained. And why? Because constraint is good for science. You can draw strong inferences. The studies can be rigorous. However, constraint doesn't allow you to explore and at this stage, we need a bit of exploration because I think it's fair to say we don't know how to deliver the treatment in an optimal way. Robin, have you ever had either no results or, or, or bad results, or has it always been a varying degree of success? So you see pretty impressive improvements at the group level. However, you do have cases that either don't respond or even at least for a period, show worsening of their mental health presentation. So we feel that it's responsible and important to point the microscope at those individuals. We're doing that right now to try and better understand what happens in those, albeit rare cases. And I don't think there have been any cases uh, in the modern era, maybe one, you know, and this is now in thousands uh, of uh, anything like an enduring psychotic symptoms from a psychedelic experience. So there's, there's always risk that the name of the game is to try and shift the ratio in favor of benefit to harm. And I think it is firmly in that direction. Would you confidently say that what we're talking about is a, is a much better approach than, than pharmaceutical treatments that are available now to people with these conditions? We're talking about depression in particular, I guess. It's my view, yes. I think psychiatry has been dominated for decades by the pharmacotherapy model, or in other words, the drug model, where doctor sees patient, patient says, I have you know this, that, and the other. They say, doctor says, you've got depression, and here's your prescription. 
and patient says, oh, okay, you know, actually I, I wanted psychotherapy. Well, there's a long waiting list for psychotherapy. Okay, I'll take these drugs and, and off they go. That can happen in, you know, I think the average consultancy time with your GP is seven minutes. Now that's a very efficient model and it's cost effective, but is it really serving the individual in a satisfying way? And so this is the challenge, you know, can we make psychedelic therapy, which is a combination treatment? Yes, it involves a drug, but it's, there's two components, psychedelic therapy, psychedelic therapy. Um, and so it's using the drug to improve the therapeutic process. And so I think there's a huge potential for psychedelic therapy, psychedelics to come in and catalyze depth psychotherapy. And uh, in, in a sense, improve psychotherapy. I was interested to hear you say that pharmaceutical companies are starting to be interested in this because it's a, it's a big loss for them potentially to lose the other bit, which is the antidepressants. Yeah. I mean, I, I think psychedelic therapy ha has superiority, but it doesn't have to be all one and not the other. There might be certain individuals with particularly complex presentations who require some kind of chronic medication strategy to stabilize them. I don't know. I'll leave that to the clinicians, but it seems a bit absolutist to promote one treatment and forget about the rest, you know. Do you think we're on the cusp of change? Do you think there's still a long way to go? Yeah, I think there'll always be stigma, at least for, you know, a couple of generations. So, I mean, these experiences are profoundly unusual and you can't get away from that. I think uh, what's going to happen is there'll be a creeping change. I know it, it looks something like something else with the investment coming in being exponential, but I think the change in attitude and rollout will be relatively slow and it probably needs to be because people need to find their feet and not get carried away with this. You know, I've learned from experience that you can rush treatment with psychedelic therapy to try and meet milestones, you know, and if there's competition in this space, commercial competition, then that could cause problems with people rushing, trying to beat the next team, you know. That's uh, so if we can uh, go at a healthy pace, then that's going to serve the area more generally. There's a balance to be had because there's a lot of people suffering for whom treatments aren't working. You know, there's a lot of disorders that just don't have effective treatments. And so there is a desperate need. Another researcher that has worked with both David and Robin is Amanda Fielding. She's known as the Countess of Whims and March. I chatted to Amanda last year. She's a character, a great English eccentric, and a pioneer in the field. She has been called the hidden hand behind the renaissance of psychedelic science, and her contribution to global drug policy reform has been pivotal. Amanda was first introduced to LSD in the mid-1960s at the height of the first wave of scientific research into psychedelics. Impressed by the capacity to initiate mystical states of consciousness and heightened creativity, she quickly recognized its transformative and therapeutic power. I started as a single female without any letters after my name and um, realized that, um, that we were doing it wrong. We need to in integrate these compounds, change the law, do the research. So I thought for 30 years I did it the best I could through art and you know, trying to get good articles. 
So then I realized I, I had to become a foundation. It's like a Trojan horse. It's an artwork, you know, pretending to be someone you're not. And so I was lucky to get, whatever, 15 of the leading scientists in the world to be on my advisory board. And then I could play a game which I couldn't. In 1996, Amanda set up the Foundation to Further Consciousness, changing its name to the Beckley Foundation in 1998. Ultimately, the goal of Amanda's work is to make psychedelics into approved medicines so that they can legally be prescribed at clinics for those in real need. Right back in the 70s, I realized the only way to break the taboo was to do the very best science, which would demonstrate in the language, which is the religion of the modern world, i.e. science, that these things are seriously, potentially beneficial for humanity, and we should research them. I think consciousness had become a dirty word in science, funnily enough. Crick said you couldn't get a, a grant if you put consciousness in the title. It's a strange thing to happen that the very core of one's humanity should be come taboo to the people who are meant to be researching it. Why was that? I suppose partly because no one knows what consciousness is. Uh, yeah, why? It's interesting. Partly because it was associated with altered states of consciousness, which is always a kind of taboo area. Even in, I mean, Christianity was quite taboo. All the saints had mystical experiences. But it was never really accepted, the whole concept of different levels of consciousness. And the mystical experience, I, I'm wanting to do more research into it, but it's obviously a highly plastic state. So it's a state when you're completely plastic to new settings, like hot metal. I mean, you can settle into a new setting. But the particular mystical experience, which you can test on questionnaires, is particularly beneficial for healing, which is rather beautiful. And it's a kind of sweet revenge of spirituality to end up at the center of the healing process. And when, when did science start noticing? There's obviously the old-fashioned, old-school doctors of mysticism, shamans uh, and witch doctors have for centuries been interested and, and knew about this, but the actual science as we know it, when did it start picking up on this? Very, very late. I mean, I, I think Christianity was very bad for mysticism, in a sense, sadly. But it started, I suppose, William James was the first to discuss that there are veils and different levels of consciousness beyond the veils in modern science. But I mean, in, in the ancient times, it was always considered, wasn't it, the presence of the spirits and the, it was much closer in ancient times. And what I find very fascinating is that at the very beginning of human culture, they were making use, in my opinion, of altered states of consciousness, however they got there. Um, because you can see in the shows, Caves of Chauvet, which, do you know them, the French caves, which are the earliest, about uh, 43,000 years old or whatever, mm -hmm. which are just top art. And you can see that they were on top level of consciousness, very high level of consciousness. So right back then, the civilization was based on the kind of higher level of consciousness. And so it's rather interesting that humanity's amazing progression has kind of accidentally suppressed this knowledge. So it's become 
almost the work of the devil. It was kind of, it's been made the, the, the wicked, the devil player, um, altering consciousness, when actually it should be respected as an important core of humanity, the potential of altering consciousness and seeing things at a different level. One of the people leading the current research into consciousness is the psychologist, Dr. Bill Richards. You know, I grew up with a, a scientific father who uh, taught chemistry and physics, geology, and a rather pious mother. <laughs> and so kind of the science and religion have always kind of been in my blood, I think. Bill has been at the forefront of psychedelic research since the 1960s. After operations were shut down in the 1970s amid the war on drugs, he waited 22 years until the world was once more ready to hear what he had to say. The psychedelics open up these other states of consciousness that most of us didn't even know were there. It's like they've been within us all the time and we never knew they were there. And, you know, the mystical experience is a bit like talking about the Milky Way. In the scientific world, when we try to determine whether mystical consciousness happened or not, we work with six categories, a, a sense of unity, reports of being uh, beyond time and space, some intuitive knowledge, sense of sacredness, awesomeness, uh, deeply felt positive mood, joy, peace, love, so on, and a sense of ineffability or claims of paradoxicality. Mystical consciousness is becoming a scientific term. You can find it in the Journal of Nervous and Mental Disease and the Journal of Psychopharmacology and so mm -hmm. on. It's not something that is characterized by turbans and crystal balls. Do you, do you believe that it can be achieved through brain chemistry without the being induced by psychedelics? Do you, do you believe that the mystics, the religious mystics in history were not taking psychedelics or some of them perhaps were not? You know, I'm not a biochemist. Uh, mm -hmm. But I am informed that our bodies naturally produce dimethyltryptamine, mm -hmm. usually in very small quantities. So uh, uh, actually, we're all in violation of federal law by being human. <laughs> in many ways, <laughs> uh, opiates or, or uh, cannabinoids. And <laughs> that, that's right. That It's part of normal human functioning. Sufficient intensity dosage of those psychedelic mind manifesting chemicals triggers awareness of these other states of consciousness and they happen in all kinds of people many people never talk about them because they're afraid that uh, they're going crazy or people will think they're schizophrenic or something and yet they may be deeply treasured meaningful experiences I find interesting that actually it's it's very much a win-win situation in my mind. The researching and accepting and understanding better different levels of consciousness and the different technologies whereby they can be opened up, made use of. And I, I look on it as nothing but an advantage to humanity. 
And in terms of all, all this research coming into mainstream medicine, do, do you feel that the, the change is happening? Absolutely. I mean, I think we've shown uh, with the little study, I mean, that was just the first study using psilocybin as the uh, treatment for depression, and we had very good results. That was when I was working with Dave and Robin. And, but that's true in so many different areas, treating addiction, treating this, treating that, all those psychological illnesses. But I actually think these compounds are amazing for neurodegenerative illnesses. Mm -hmm. At the moment, I'm working with Alzheimer's and with um, Parkinson's and with, you know, I think they can get places which other compounds don't get. And uh, they're relatively non-toxic and um, have a lot of other related beneficial things which we haven't discovered. So there's an immense space for us to benefit. I've actually had experience of an amazing, very old person with Alzheimer's and dementia have had amazing reverses, reigniting of the soul from the quagmire of Alzheimer's. So we've done a, a research on microdosing, thinking about old age, because I think how we die in the West is uh, appalling kind of thing. How people are put in homes where, you know, the keys are thrown away, they're filled with horrible poisons to kill them off. And I mean, you know, that's... Uh, and actually, I, I've been designing a new care home where we would, having proved its beneficialness, where we would, um, well, maybe I shouldn't be saying, but where one would use microdosing of certain compounds where appropriate. And the doulas would be trained in, how do you keep old people happy? Do you know, how do you fantasize? How do you bring sparkle, fun, yoga, you know, all sorts of dancing, children, you know, into the homes? So the aim is not trying to keep them alive, all suppressed, and, um, but to make every day a happy day. And I think the work I've done so far looking at Alzheimer's, and um, I think it's very promising. Do you know, I'm not playing this game for fun. I'm playing it because I think it has beneficial effects at all these different areas. And it's more fun to play a game which has a difference. I think from all I've heard in today's episode, changes happening in certain places around the world, but I think Britain will catch up. I hope Britain will catch up. And there is definitely a change in public opinion. There's much more knowledge written about in much more mainstream publications. I think more people are aware of it. And from the research that I've read into this and from speaking to the experts we spoke to today, it's clear that this must and has to become part of the field in order to help those in need because the evidence is clearly there that it changes people's lives. Thank you for listening to this episode of Brave New World. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave a review wherever you get your podcast.